new beginning. Welcome to the Grief Dreams podcast. My name is Sean Ram alongside Dr. Joshua Black. It's a beautiful day to podcast. And uh, again, it's uh, something that we love to do. Thank you for listening. Thank you for all, all of you who've taken the time out of your day to uh, listen to whatever episode you're listening. And uh, again, we just really appreciate all that. Um, so let's get right into it. On today's podcast, we have with us Dr. TJ Ray, and she is a professor of religious studies at Salve Regina University in Newport, Rhode Island, where she teaches a diverse array of classes, ranging from grief and loss to women of the Bible. A prolific writer, Dr. Ray is the author of many articles and books, including the best-selling Surviving the Death of a Sibling, Living Through Grief When an Adult Brother or Sister Dies, also Grief Dreams, How They Help Heal Us After the Death of a Loved One. Um, A popular biblical scholar, she also has written The Birth of Satan, Tracing the Devil's Biblical Roots, Good Girls, Bad Girls, The Enduring Lessons of Twelve Women of the Old Testament, and Good Girls, Bad Girls of the New Testament, What the Bible Really Tells Us, The Essential Guide for Biblical Literacy as well. Dr. A has appeared on national public radio, several documentaries on the History Channel, and various other television and radio programs across the country and abroad. An intrepid traveler, she has led tours to biblical lands, studied at the Tantor Ecumenical Institute in Jerusalem, and participated in archaeological excavations in Israel. Dr. Ray, welcome to the podcast. Oh, thank you for having me. I'm delighted to be here. What a bio, man. I, I hope in... Uh, <laughs> 20 years and mine, mine gets that long. <laughs> so, uh, such, is the, such is the world of academia, you know. Uh, I never thought I'd have all these opportunities growing up as a little girl in Baltimore, uh, where little girls didn't even go to college. But, uh, you know, it's, it's been a great ride so far. So, yeah, thanks. That's amazing. And you forgot to mention you're recently in a Next Avenue uh, article on grief dreams. And so I was so excited. So I got interviewed for that also. But when I started reading it, it was so exciting because your name popped up. Because usually <laughs> what they interview like two experts, right? And your name popped up. I'm like, yeah. oh, I know her. <laughs> like, yeah. I ran and grabbed my yeah, book. And it was, it was the same. You were the same person. And so I was super excited. because, Yeah, I was just super excited because um, when I started doing the work, right? Trying to like look at grief dreams. Your book was one of those things that came up and it was the only book I found that actually had uh, citations for articles that were written on the topic. (laughs) And so I was like, she gets it. (laughs) She understands. It didn't have the answers that I was seeking um, because it just wasn't research at that time, but it had some sources. So I was like, oh, wow. So I really used that as um, a stepping stone as I went through my MA and then PhD to help others. So I want to thank you for writing that book. Well, you're very welcome. Uh, you and I have spoken privately. I'd never intended to write a book on grief dreams, but sometimes these things just um, come to you. And it was really the direct result of the research I conducted for my first book, Surviving the Death of a Sibling, uh, Living Through Grief When an Adult Brother or Sister Dies. And I interviewed about a thousand people for that book. And uh, this is like before internet and Facebook, believe it or not. And, um, you know, but that, it was interesting trying to get people to talk was difficult, but the topic of dreams was something that everybody wanted to talk about. Oh, wait a minute. And well, I did have a dream, you know, and they talk about that. And, uh, it, it's, 
it's quite interesting. I've conducted workshops and things like for hospice and other organizations, grief organizations, and um, they're always asking for tools to get patients and clients to speak. And I always tell them, hey, use the dream. It's a, it's a, it's a good inroad, and it does work. So, you know, we all have our dreams. We don't want to talk about them, especially during bereavement. Yeah, and so like it's very similar to so what happened with me and just being a part of a grief group and people want to talk about this stuff. But before we get there, because I know that we could talk about this for like three hours, I want to <laughs> want to go to your get back to your journey because you're also a biblical scholar, and I think that's super interesting. And that was before all the grief and loss and the dream stuff, right? You so you right had, you envisioned this as part of your career. Um, so how did that come about? Uh, well, I first of all, I never thought I, my first book or any book would be about grief. Um, in fact, uh, the book that the first book that I wanted to write was about the biblical, the first king uh, in Israel, who was King Saul. Most people think that's David, but he was the second king. And I was researching that. I still haven't written that seven books later, but I'll get to it eventually. <laughs> um, but then, uh, you know, my my brother died. And um, I was very close to my brother. And uh, as an academic, I was just looking for some resources that would offer some comfort. And uh, really, his death was sudden, and it devastated my family. Just, you know, we just exploded and have never been the same. And um, so kind of in an effort to help my own broken heart, I ended up writing this book myself um, because there's nothing out there. Like you said, when you were researching grief dreams, well, you found my book, but that's hardly enough to write a dissertation about or base a career on. It's a good stepping stone, as you said, but um, but I had nothing. So I started to write that book and that the reaction of the book was so phenomenal that I thought, well, maybe in some strange way I'm called to do this. You know, I'm not you know, a lot of people say, well, you're a scholar of religion. I'm not really a biblical scholar, more text and archaeology, historian, if you will, uh, more than I am, you know, like religious, so to speak, as people think of what religion is. And, um, you know, so grief is certainly a part of that, but never in a million years I think I would write about this. So, but the, the biblical stuff, yeah, that's what I, I do, that I travel, I go to Israel, well, at least pre-COVID, I go to Israel a couple times a year. I work on our uh, excavations um, in 20, what year was this? I think it was 2016. I was the keynote speaker at the International Women's Symposium in Magdala, Israel, the home of Mary Magdalene. And, you know, it's interesting, though, as I've moved along in my career, I see how important dreams were to the people in antiquity. And they believed that the dreams were a way that God or the gods uh, spoke to them. And they were taken very, very seriously. They're mentioned throughout the Bible. Probably if, if uh, your audience members are Christian, they will probably remember Pilate's wife, who has one line in the Gospel of Matthew, where she tells her husband, to, who's Pontius Pilate, has nothing to do with Jesus because she suffered mightily in a dream she had about him. Of course, he ignores her advice, but anyway, um, you know, so that's just an example of dreams being very prophetic in the ancient world. And many people still today will, um, will swear to this, that, you know, this is the way that they communicate with their loved ones, or um, they got a message to buy stock or travel or do something through the power of a dream. So it's, 
you know, dreams are, uh, have a very, very long history. Yeah, I know when I started valuing dreams was probably just when I just got into university. I had a very profound dream and it started to mean something. Before then, my parents told me that dreams are from the devil. And so I was always oh, afraid man. of dreams. Yeah, I know, I know. It's, <laughs> but here I am. Look at that. <laughs> yeah, wow. <laughs> and there's a will, there's a way. <laughs> you can break anything. <laughs> yeah. Um, because I was probably having a, a lot of nightmares, and that's how they sort of tried to understand it at that time. Mm-hmm. And for mm-hmm. whatever reason, have you ever understood why maybe dreams aren't talked about as much now as they probably were back then? You know, I thought a lot about this actually in my field because, uh, you know, people, a lot of students, for example, at my university, they're required to take two religious studies courses. And a lot of people are afraid they're going to be in like a Sunday school situation. So I always have to uh, warn them off. Look, I'm a teacher, not a preacher. This is an academic course. So, you know, relax, uh, enjoy it. But I think it's in the same kind of roadway, I guess, or aisle as the, where we've tossed religion. People don't really want to talk about religion. Uh, the same way that, you know, you, when you were growing up, your parents said, don't talk about religion or politics. Well, you know, dreams somehow have gotten really connected to religion and not in a good way. Um, you know, there are several cults in, in recent history in which, you know, God supposedly has spoken to leaders like, you know, David Koresh and the Heaven's Gate cults and other smaller cults about the end of the world. And so, you know, dreams connected to religion do have a negative connotation. But that has, that's a more recent development. You know, um, up until, geez, about 100 years ago, dreams were certainly not held in that regard. They were very much respected and um, people looked forward to having dreams of their loved ones you know, when they died. So it's kind of interesting. Yeah. And a lot of talks that I give, there's always one person, maybe two that come up to me either after the talk or they'll ask the question um, during a talk that basically are these dreams from the devil? Because someone in my family told me that it's the devil in disguise. And I think that's interesting. I don't know where people got that. And it was a very loving dream that they shared, but Mm -hmm. people have sort of tried to demonize some of these dreams and take away some of the healing power that you've mentioned in your book. Well, de- that can definitely answer the question about the devil and the dreams because, you know, um, well, I did my dissertation on the devil and the Bible, not like the occult or what happens after the Bible, just where did that character emerge in Judeo-Christian history, you know, and scripture? Why did it emerge? What does it do? Um, but you know, the devil has lots of names, you know, the big deceiver, the father of lies. And so it, there was this belief fairly early on that the devil did communicate in all sorts of ways. You know, he's, he's a, ship sh- a shapeshifter. So, you know, when I teach my Satan seminar course, which I teach in the fall this year, we start out by talking about monsters in the Bible, and there's many of them, and there are different classifications. And you know, the devil is a monster. He's a chaos monster, which means, of course, he causes havoc, but he can assume different forms and um, he can also infiltrate dreams. So this became a belief pretty early on in antiquity. And so just as dreams were connected to God, the negative dreams were also connected to Satan. Okay. Once you get the separation between God and the devil, then you start to get the separation of the dreams as well. Because in the Old Testament or Hebrew Bible, 
you know, God says, I, I bring weal and woe. I bring goodness and sadness. I do it all. So good things and bad things come from God. And that causes a lot of problems for people. So if you're suffering and you say, well, I'm suffering, and the reason I'm suffering is from God, how do you bend your knee and pray for deliverance? Well, that is really tough. And, you know, that's got a big fancy name. It's called the problem of theodicy. You know, how can an all-loving, all-knowing, all-powerful God allow the innocent to suffer? And, you know, we see this kind of coming into a, a mushroom cloud by the time we get to the book of Job, which addresses this head on. And then uh, what happens is there's basically a split. I call it a personality split, but it, it really is much more than that, where you have, you know, the all good things then come from God. God is on the side of the righteous sufferer. And then where does evil come from? When you take God out of that equation, well, there's got to be a malignant force somewhere. And so and this is a complicated answer to that, but based on other religions in the area, you know, eventually this kind of benign character in the Old Testament morphs into a demon by the time you get to the New Testament. So that in and of itself is a very interesting study. Uh, it takes me about a half a semester in a class to bring my students up to that stage, but it's an interesting one. Yeah, that's that's super fascinating. And there's a lot going on there. And it would require like a whole course to kind of uh, open up in terms of the the perspective of God that kind of changes throughout the Bible. Mm. Um, like, it seems like there's a couple things in modern times that kind of, in, in my opinion, that that's going on. And that one of them is like kind of the prevalence of science and the the almost like the new religion of science where, you know, people have kind of shifted their perspective from you know religion being kind of the focal point in their life to kind of answering a lot of their questions to science becoming kind of the focal point and then kind of uh, maybe moving and stepping away from the mainstream uh, kind of religions and then I think that has kind of led us to led people in general to kind of drop a lot of the analysis or looking into dreams itself first of all there wasn't much research to begin with but just the fact that it can't be explained properly, it gets thrown into as a almost pseudoscience in a lot of ways. Mm. Um, and then the other thing that's kind of like interesting is I think a lot of the guidance around dreams has kind of faded. Whereas I guess in the past you would have, you know, not just even Christianity, but even like, you know, let's say Native American tribes, you would have like a person designated, you know, some sort of shaman or guide who would help someone in the community to help you understand some of these dreams. So you had somewhere to go or, you know, in Christianity, like a minister, a pastor, you know, someone you could go to, to kind of help explain some of these things. But if you kind of take spirituality is kind of waning and you remove, you step away from that a little more, you don't have that person. So it's left to kind of people and families to kind of make sense of it. And it's so complicated along with the perspective of God and the devil that even a negative dream can be seen as well that falls into the negative category and it falls into the devil. Um, there's a lot going on there, but you know, I think that's a big thing is people don't know what to make of it because they don't know. It, it's hard to do an analysis on a dream in general. Well, yeah. And then you throw in psychology, you know, with first Freud and then Jung, who of course you probably, uh, you know, studied Jung extensively as I have, but, you know, you, you have uh, psychology thrown into the mix, and there's this general 
there was then and there still is a general distrust distrust among many um, members of the population um, when it comes to psychology. You know, right now I know in America there's a big wave of sort of anti-intellectualism that is sweeping the country. So a lot of it has to do with, um, you know, kind of the sociology and the fear of, you know, delving into one's mind uh, through psychology um, and then religion. So it's all kind of lumped together. And I think you're right. People don't know, you know, if I'm having a dream of my mom who passed away, is my mom communicating to me, trying to comfort me? Or is this my psyche at work, right? Yeah. If it's a wonderful healing dream, naturally, we want to wake up and say, I, just, I spent some time with my mom last night. It felt really wonderful. We don't want to say, oh, well, that was my unconscious at work and it was surfacing when I'm sleeping and here's the you know, symbolic language of the dream, which we could sit and talk about that for three hours. But you know, people who are grieving generally want to know you know, wow, I never had a dream about my mom like that before. Why am I dreaming this now? And I think you're right. There were, and there still are in some communities, especially you mentioned Native communities, they're still very active in helping with dream interpretation. And I'm sure you get that question a lot when you do workshops. I know I do. People will come up and ask me, listen, I had this dream, and they'll tell me the dream, and then they look at me very expectantly, and they say, so what do you think it means? And I always answer them exactly the same way. I'm like, well, why don't you tell me what it means? And then they always say, well, that's why I'm asking you. <laughs> and I, I say, but you're in the best position to tell me what it means. And nine times out of ten, they will sit down and they'll start talking and they know exactly what the dream means. They just needed the permission to interpret their own dream, you know? That's a big thing in our culture is just we don't get taught how to look at dreams. And... What I think is very interesting is that even on the podcast, we've heard people had a dream and then they go to their religious leader to see if it's okay to like talk about it, right? So they'll go to the imam or the pastor and say, what do you think of this, right? Same thing with you, right? People come up to you saying, what do you think of this? And then they're, so mm -hmm. they're putting the value of the dream on someone else. And is it okay to share? Is this the devil? Is this God, right? And they don't know, right? Like, like they, they know right. as much as you do, but they'll give an answer. And then that answer, yeah. if it can complicate their grief, if it's negative. And that's what I was finding. That was one of the most shocking things I found when I started working on this, because that's the, the reason we started to raise awareness or in my mind, I'm like, we need to really talk about this subject was because when I, when I was going out and looking for people to help out with the research, people were saying like some of their positive dreams, they're saying that their pastor told them that it was a negative thing. So uh, a dream that was healing to them or thought it was going to be healing, the pastor turned into something negative. So it's like the deceased saying that they love them. All of a sudden they say, no, that's the devil in disguise. Um, rebuke that or whatnot, right? And even as I worked through my career, I had pastors say that you're doing the work of the devil where others saying you're doing the work of God. So it was very interesting to see that dichotomy. And you see that actually through all religions. There is this sort of split where... Um, positive dreams can be looked at as negative. And I'm like, where did this come from, right? Like, how are people doing this? And, you know, what does it say? And like, the sad thing is I like, especially in the Bible, there's nothing really on, there's a lot on dreams, right? Joseph and his dreams and Daniel, but there's nothing on mm -hmm. these grief dreams. And I think that's fascinating because I would think mm -hmm. they would have had them, right? Would you agree? You think people would have had them oh, back then? 
Oh, they did. They did have them. And remember that when we're reading the Bible, or if you're reading one of my books written about the Bible, if you look in the back and you see my resources, of course I use the Bible, I use various translations of the Bible, but there's a lot, there's a whole body of literature called extra biblical writing, most of it written during the period between the Old Testament and the New Testament called the intertestamental period. But it is precisely during that period where you have Satan, who is an innocuous character in the Hebrew Bible. He's not a demon. He has no power on his own. He's not a devil. But during the intertestamental period, under the flurry of apocalyptic literature, which was you know dealing with the end of the world and social upheaval and war and famine, all that stuff was going on. You, know, you think things are bad now, but during that time period, it was pretty tough. And they needed a scapegoat. Who can we blame this on? Well, they could no longer blame it on God. So then this character who's mentioned outside the Bible, he becomes the, the scapegoat. And he's responsible for all the horrible things that happened to us. Now, having said that, that's where it came from. But, you know, there's, you know, it bothers me a little bit when people who are, you know, supposed to be your religious leaders uh, designate themselves as psychologists to interpret a dream or to even, you know, attempt to tell you what your own dream means. Because as you know, and I know, you know, I have a shelf full of, you know, dream dictionaries that talk about symbolic meanings of dreams. And some of them are universal. You know, when you dream about a house, for example, that's usually yourself. Um, and that's, as I said, fairly universal. Most of us, that's what it is. But it's not always. You know, the dream is as unique as the dreamer. And so how can anyone, uh, you know, minister spouse, best friend, you know, uh, understand the unique symbolic language of your unconscious. We barely understand it, you know? Yeah, and that's a great point. And I think that speaks to, as well, the power politics in religion at play. You know, through the history of Christianity, essentially, you just, after Jesus, it started pretty much of like, you know, people coming in, I mean, men writing the Bible, writing the literature that came after it, and people are involved. People are, uh, according to Christianity, still, you know, human sin. And so there's power politics in play. And so people manipulating, you know, the interpretation of the devil possibly to get what they want done. Uh, you see that in, you know, throughout the Catholic Church, the history of all that, uh, of uh, that being manipulated. And then people really, obviously, until the Gutenberg invention of the Gutenberg press, people weren't able to really read the Bible for themselves. So they're getting the information from a person, from a powerful, you know, priest or, or a member, and obviously usually men, um, which also speaks right. to kind of why your work was so important with women in the Bible, because that's extracting information that's seen in a different light uh, as, as opposed to what people were used to. But yeah, that's um, it. Not just like, when you when you have all that power in the hands of you know a few powerful people or a few powerful men like that's you can't prevent them from some people from using that in a bad way and manipulating and and saying that well you know no this dream means this or this dream means you guys need to donate more to the church or you know there's there's lots of shady stuff that went on oh yeah um in my book uh what the bible really tells us the essential guide to biblical literacy i actually wrote that book because I was teaching an intro to the Bible course, and people were talking about the same things that we're talking about right now. 
and they couldn't believe that at one time it was illegal to for someone to own a Bible. And then, you know, King Henry VIII, when he started the Church of England, you know, before that, if you were found with a Bible, and William Tyndale, who was a priest, he was printing them, you know, this was right after the Reformation started, and they were smuggling them into England. But if you got caught with one, you would be arrested, taken to the tower, and mostly executed. But then, you know, once the Church of England came along, there was a Bible in every pew. And suddenly, you know, you're supposed to be reading from the Bible, at least for the, you know, the Protestants. You know, the fear, though, was that because the Bible was a translated book into whatever language, English or Spanish, whatever you're reading it, most people haven't read it in its native language, which is Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek in the New Testament. The fear was that you would misinterpret it. And that's a fear. I understand it because I see it all the time. People do all, do that all the time. But, you know, things have changed now. If people are really interested in the Bible, there are tons of books. I always, I mean, the Bible that I use in my class is a study Bible. It has footnotes and, you know, resources to explain maps so people know where places are and what certain strange words mean that we don't use anymore. And so it, it can be dangerous in the wrong hands. And, you know, history, of course, we could go through the Inquisition and, and many other horrible things and talk about that. But I think today for this to happen, for uh, it just breaks my heart, actually. I'm thinking about a, gr a grieving person going to their clergy person with a dream and then having that dream, which offered them some comfort in their grief, being discounted or even worse, blamed on, you know, the presence of the devil. I mean, that's very sad to hear. Very sad well, to hear. Well, I know when I was a kid, like just that made me afraid to go to bed because I thought, you know, like, oh, my, mm -hmm. that's, that's when I get attacked. And to be and to be afraid to even remember the dreams itself, right? I really and I believe that I stopped remembering dreams for a time because of that. So you know, like, it's interesting. And I want to actually shift to grief in the Bible because okay. then I want to talk about your own. Um, so how did the Bible really talk about like how did they grieve back then? Well, you know, it's interesting because it goes through different phases of grief, and archaeology is actually a very helpful. Um, with this as well, you know, and the Psalms deal with grief. Uh, they weren't much different than we are, you know, except the life expectancy was much shorter for men in, in rural areas, which is about 90% of the population. Men lived to be in their early 40s. So Jesus was kind of old in the tooth, actually, when he died. And women, you know, would often die in their teens or 20s. That's why, you know, there was a, a limit on the number of times a man could get married because most of the families were what we would call today blended families because the leading cause of death for women was complication in pregnancy and childbirth and infections postpartum. So many times, uh, you know, you would have a man who he was on his third wife. Um, so it wasn't that, uh, I mean, divorce was permitted, but they didn't really divorce very often. The, the, the woman would die. And um, so the, the grief is talked about. I think probably one of the most moving stories about grief is, um, I'm getting this off the top of my head, but this is um, the story of David and his friend Jonathan dies. And um, he sings this magnificent elegy to his friend. Um, it's in the book of, I just grabbed my Bible, um, it's in 2 Samuel. Uh, yeah, it's in, in, 
it's in 2 Samuel when um, uh, Saul, who's the first king, he is actually, uh, he dies in battle and, and his sons are desecrated. Very, very sad. And then David finds out about it and he weeps and mourns and, and cries and sings this very powerful elegy um, in the second book of Kings, it is. Yes, I'm looking at it now. Yes, it's in the beginning, uh, first chapter of the second book of, book of Kings. And then throughout the Psalms, we have people who um, are talking about death. You know, the Psalms have different genres, like the hymns of praise. Um, but most of them, I think 80% of the Psalms, are lament Psalms. And so it's a different form of prayer, you know, talking to God and saying, well, how could you let me down? Or I'm suffering, how could this happen? You know, please come and, and rescue me. You, you've rescued me in the past, where are you now? That's a typical way that Psalms go. For Christians, one of the most moving um, images is when Jesus dies and Mary Magdalene. You know, the Gospels give different renditions of what happens in the um, aftermath of Jesus' uh, murder, brutal murder. Um, but he's, his body is laid in a garden tomb. And in the Gospel of John, you have Mary Magdalene. Everyone else leaves. And Mary Magdalene is hanging around in the tomb. And she's crying. Her eyes are swollen. And she's so upset. and She's in the garden, and it's, you know, it's pre-dawn, and she sees someone moving around, and she thinks it's the gardener, and then, but it's Jesus, and then he says her name, and all of us, you know, when someone we love says our name, we know who it is, and she knows it's him, and she runs to him, and, you know, they embrace, and he says, you know, I, have, I still have work to do, you know, but go tell everybody that I'm, you know, I've risen, and all that kind of stuff, so it's really beautiful story but it also shows us you know how people feel about death there's resurrection stories most resurrection stories occur in an upper room so in the old testament you have the resurrection of uh she doesn't have her first name but she's called the shunammite woman her son dies and uh the prophet elisha goes up into an upper room and he does what sounds to us like artificial respiration and he is risen from the dead the widow of Zarephatha, who is her son, uh, dies, and he's raised by the prophet Elijah. Uh, in the New Testament, Jesus raises a little girl who uh, dies. Um, she, uh, Someone who's on the brink of death, Peter's mother, Jesus heals her. And then after Jesus' death, he has taught his apostles how to heal, and Peter raises Tabitha who is a woman who is, she's the only one who's called a disciple, female disciple. The word disciple is actually used. And she dies and he learns from Jesus and he raises her from the dead. And it shows that it's a beautiful story uh, in the Acts of the Apostles. You know, she's a philanthropist, kind of the first philanthropist. She's helping widows and orphans who were the most marginalized in the ancient world. And they're all crying and She's dead, and then Peter comes on the scene, and then you have this dramatic resurrection event. It's beautiful, but you could see the grief, you know, which was really your question. How did they grieve? They grieved very openly. Uh, in fact, they had what other countries have. My husband is from Ireland, and uh, nobody does a funeral like the Irish. And so they had um, people who would uh, be hired as professional keeners, you know, who would be crying. But they don't do it anymore, but, you know, in the old days, they, they did that. And so some scholars have questioned uh, in the story of Tabitha I just mentioned to you, were they professional keeners? The answer is no. These were very clearly people that Tabitha had taken in, had clothed, helped their children, um, and was very dear to them. So, you know, 
I think a lot of people, when they read the Bible, they just like to think of it as, uh, oh, everybody loved God, so everything was just fine. But, you know, even if they believed that they would return to God, they were from God, whatever it was, they still grieve very deeply. You know, there's a, the child death, um, mortality, morbidity is extraordinarily high uh, during this time period. So it's, you know, there was a lot of death, a lot of war, destruction, famine. It's a tough time, tough time to be alive. Uh, yeah, that's for sure. Uh, I was just actually thinking about Lazarus's story because I think there was even a point where oh, yeah. they were trying to get Jesus and then he wasn't coming. He had something to do. And then they even got almost slightly annoyed with him, if I remember correctly, because he came yeah, late. That's a story in, right. That's the story of Martha and Mary. And that's in begins in uh, chapter 11 um, of the Gospel of John and through uh, chapter 12. And Jesus is about to go on a journey, and a uh, friend comes and says to Jesus, the one whom you love, and that's Bible talk for your best friend, is ill. And Jesus considers for a minute, and he says, the sickness shall not be unto death, which means he's not going to die, I'll be back in time. So Jesus goes on his trip, and while he's away, of course, Lazarus dies. And Jesus is also friends with Mary and Martha. There's a beautiful story in the Gospel of Luke where he goes and visits them in their house and whatnot. In any case, as he's approaching the town of Bethany, um, which I've been to many times myself, Martha runs out and greets him. And she says, where were you? If you would have been here, my brother wouldn't have died. And, you know, he tries to talk her down. And then Mary says the same kind of thing when she approaches. And then we have the shortest line in the Bible, in the New Testament, Jesus wept. He goes to the tomb. He sees it. He's dead. Jesus, you know, John, the author, wants to make it clear that Jesus, that uh, Lazarus is dead. He's been in the tomb for four days. Martha cautions Jesus that there will be a stench. And the reason is we didn't want, you know, they didn't want people to think he was unconscious. This, he is dead. And then Jesus raises him from the dead. And it's this beautiful story. He walks out. He's in these burial bands. He walks out of the tomb. He's alive. You know, the next chapter you have them eating dinner together with uh, his sisters. But in that same story, you have the temple elite, that small group. And it was a very small group who was after him in the temple. And they turn to each other and they're like, okay, you don't say it this way, but it's basically like, it's one thing if he's performing a few miracles, but he's raising people from the dead. This has got to stop. And that's the pivotal event in John. Everything turns now to the march to the cross and the arrest and death of Jesus and resurrection. So I can't believe I skipped over Lazarus. That's one of my favorite stories. Yeah, I, and, and yeah. Well, it's it's one of the popular ones that I actually remember. But that it, I just wanted to say that's fascinating because Jesus, before he goes on the trip, says he's not going to die, probably with confidence. Right. Comes back. Yep. Takes part in the grieving. So actually takes part in the grieving. It's not like he's laughing to himself going, oh, these people don't know what I'm about to do. <laughs> they literally, right. He's literally taking right. part in the grieving. So I think that's a really, that's an important aspect right there. And then he goes about and, and brings Lazarus back. Fascinating. Right. Well, you know, the story is all, you know, Jesus even says to himself that it's a, it's, this is an occasion to reveal God's love through the resurrection. And so you know, when he goes on that journey, does he really know at that point that that's going to happen? Maybe, you know, we don't have it explicitly. Right. We just don't know. We just know what happens afterwards. You know, it does reveal God's glory. It answers that question that, that 
one of the questions that people have asked for eternity, what happens to us after we die? You know, that's the biggest question when I start every new semester. I'm like, what are the three big questions you have? And it's always like, you know, why is there suffering in the world? Innocent people suffering. What happens to us after we die? Those are always asked. And, you know, I always say, how would you feel if you knew you had nothing to worry about? Uh, as far as how you die and what happens to you after you die, if it was all going to be fine, all wonderful. And everyone says, well, everyone says it would be a big sigh of relief. So it's one of those fears that we don't walk around and talk about a lot, like, you know, catching COVID. Everyone's talking about that. But it's obviously on the back of people's minds, the idea that, you know, life is finite for all of us and you never know. And so it, it is something that resides in the human heart and in the human psyche and, of course, resurfaces in our dreams. I think this is a good turning point because that was sibling grief that you just talked about in the story of Lazarus. So <laughs> I think it'd be a good time to talk about yours and your relationship. It was your brother, right, who died? Yes, my brother. Yeah. Can you talk um, about your relationship with him and then, you know, how you, I guess, how you found out about his death and what occurred to you at that yeah. moment? Well, uh, he was a family of five and he was my only brother. And um, we were five years apart. He was older than me. And he, you know, when you have big families, they kind of pair up. And he was my, he was my one. He was my person. And uh, he was my best friend and he was my brother. And, you know, the only good thing about his death, I always say, was there was nothing left unsaid between us because we had that kind of relationship. And um, he um, he got very ill, and um, he actually the cause of death was complication from the flu, but he had um, been HIV positive, and this was before they had great drugs to treat it, and he was doing very very well, but he got the flu and it killed him. So you know it infuriates me when people talk about COVID being like the flu. Now oh, it's no big deal. You know people die from the flu all the time. You know, so anyway, um, so we didn't expect him to die. He died quickly and it was right around the holidays, Christmas holidays. It was just, it was, it's been the seminal event of my life. You know, there's not a day that goes by when I don't miss him and think about him. And because I was closest to him and my siblings, I thought, well, I'm going to have dreams about him, you know, and everybody was having dreams about him but me. <laughs> And uh, that's when I realized there's actually a competitive nature within families. Uh, that, that's one of the dynamics when we're talking about grief dreams. Um, so they were dreaming about him, and I was, I was finding myself getting jealous. I, this is ridiculous. My sister's grieving too. Why am I feeling this way? And it took probably, I'd say, six months before I finally had a dream about him. The, the first one was very frustrating. It was uh, I classified the dreams into four different areas, message dreams, visitation dreams, reassurance dreams, and trauma dreams. And there are more classifications, but just for ease, um, that's the classifications that I, I used in my book. But anyway, this would have been, I, I thought of it as a trauma dream. And um, it's, it's a fairly common dream, so you've probably heard of something along, not exactly, but along these lines. But I, I dreamt I was in a car park, you know, parking garage. And uh, I got out of my car and I could see ahead of me, I could see my brother walking ahead of me. And he had his coat on and 
I've known him all my life. I know how he walks and, you know, and I knew it was him. And I stood there for a minute and I said, oh my God. And I started to run after him and I called his name and he kind of half glanced over his shoulder and I could see his profile, but not his face. And then he was kind of hurrying up and I started running and crying after him and saying, stop, come back, stop, stop. And then he started to run for me. And by that time I was hysterical and I woke up. So, you know, when I ask people about their dreams, I always say, how did you feel when you woke up? Well, after that, I, I was traumatized when I woke up. I was so upset. And it took a while to have any more dreams about him. But I, then, wanna, um, I just want to like mention one ahead. thing. So everyone's having dreams of him. And when you have your dream, he's running away from you, right? Like he's running away what from that me. would, yeah, what that would do to you, I oh, can't understand. Yeah, I couldn't fathom. It, it was, yeah, it was unbelievable. And I had been feeling, uh, since his death, the call to write this book, and I kept dismissing it. I'm like, I'm not going to write about this. I, I don't have it in me right now, you know. But I do feel like he was part of that, which is a separate story. So a, a few months later. Um, I dreamt that I was having people to my house and they were in my dining room, which is not very big, but I had a dining room table with about, and there were no chairs, just all the food was set up on it. People were standing around, whatever. And there's a mirror though in my dining room and I was setting something out on the table and I looked up in the mirror and I could see him in the mirror and he was behind me and he, so he was looking forward. I looked up, I saw him in the mirror, and I turned around, of course in the dream, turned around, and he wasn't there. And then I turned back around and looked in the mirror, and he was in the mirror, and he nodded and he smiled, and then he held up his his glass to me, and then I woke up. And so that, that was very comforting. It sounds a little strange, and other people said, oh, that would have been upsetting, turn around and have him not there, but he was there in the way he could be there, you know? So those are the two, like, these are probably the most pivotal dreams that I had, the ones that I remembered. And, and the mirror dream when I woke up, I was like, oh, he is, he is listening. He does hear me, you know, talking to him at night. He knows how much I miss him, you know. And so that, that, that did offer me some comfort. Uh, another dream I had was uh, we used to love, he and I were the only kids who liked, it's called Swedish Fish. It's a candy. And they're little red, chewy, like gummy bear kind of candies. And you usually had to go to a candy shop to get them. And so I had a dream that we had a little white bag with Swedish fish in them. And we were leaning against his car, eating them out of the bag. I don't know what we were talking about, but we were laughing. And my brother and I together were very, very funny. So I always feel like I lost my sidekick, you know. Um, we were always making jokes and faces and we would use weird accents when we were out to talk to each other and ugly, strange names to call each other in stores, just stupid things that siblings do. And so I don't know what we were laughing at, but we were laughing hysterically while we were eating these Swedish fish. And that's all the dream was. So I considered that, uh, you know, a reassurance dream as well because it was very comforting. So... Um, I mean, there were more, but those are the ones that I, I remember most and meant the most to me. And after all these years, I still remember. I can see it as if it was yesterday, you know. 
That's so beautiful. And I'm glad you had finally had one of those comforting dreams. And you know, when I when I yeah. look at that, especially the fish dream and you laughing, like what that like what that would yeah. do. You know, like there's just like it's such a beautiful moment. And oh, to yeah. wake up from that, right? Like so in the dream it would have been so beautiful. But then when you woke up and like to have that type of dream that could elude that kind of emotion while you're suffering, right? Because you said like the grief journey is a difficult process, but you had these this moment where right. where you could sort of remember the laughter and, and be within that that love, I guess what it is. It's like your the the love you had in your relationship. Yeah. Yeah. It it was. And, you know, it um it continues to be. I mean, you know, there were a lot of strange things that happened after that dream. You know, I remember a student hand made a pair of earrings for me and they were mother of pearl very tiny silver fish and she gave that to me after that dream and i lost one of the earrings and i was very upset about it couldn't find it anywhere and the the earrings meant a lot to me because my brother was cremated and when we scattered his ashes and we went out onto the beach in the evening and we swam out to a sandbar and each of us had some of his ashes in our hands. And then we were going to meet on the sandbar and scatter the ashes. So I'm swimming with my hand above my head with some of his ashes. And I'm talking to him. And the sun is starting to set. It's beautiful. I'm swimming out. And all of a sudden, this beautiful, big, silver fish swept up, came out of the water, wiped against my thigh, and then disappeared under the water. And I was screaming to my sisters, oh, my gosh, oh, my God, you know, I can't believe this, you know. And I finally got to the sandbar, and I was out of breath and told them what happened. And, of course, everybody jumped in and wanted to go to see if they could find the fish. But I felt like that was his way of communicating to me. So together with the the Swedish fish and the earrings and then the scattering of his ashes, and all that fish stuff made a lot of sense to me. Oh, that's so cool how the dream almost like – uh, alluded to other forms of continuing bonds in waking life. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's so right. And that, yeah, and only I would have gotten that, you know. So it, that's when I feel like, you know, I, I don't know. People ask me all the time, do you think your loved ones communicate with you through dreams? Is that possible? And I always say, yes, anything's possible. You know, do I know for sure? No. Do I, I can't answer that for myself unequivocally i don't know but you know i think so i think so i think that's possible and if i get to choose i'm gonna say it is possible you know yeah and that's a that's a very responsible way to say that i mean that's something that we always talk about on the podcast is we want to provide information and have a academic scope to it rather than right talking in definitives um i don't think that's a that doesn't do justice to the person who's sharing their dream no and it's it's not it's not yeah it's not it's not helpful is the best way to put it it's not helpful to be close-minded like that because there's so much that we don't know and so these kinds of conversations we're having now the work that you're doing and continue to do and that you'll probably train others to take over for you at some stage this is we're just you know this is the tip of the iceberg with this and if we can start to you know pick away at this and find elements that help people to heal 
and add a little bit of soothing balm to the their ragged souls, you know, that are broken hearts, then, then you know, we're doing something really good and powerful, you, you know. So I, I'm really excited for the work that you're doing. And I think you're going to help a lot of people through that. So, you know, I, I, you don't seem like the kind of person who gets discouraged very often, but if you ever do, give me a call. <laughs> All right, where were you when I was doing my PhD? <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'm, I'm sorry. Those uh, years were tough. That was oh man, those years were tough. She was carrying away, you. To make full <laughs> yeah. she was, well, you know, once you get your doctorate, then you got then you got the whole tenure thing. So you kind of disappear down the rat hole until you can, um, you know, get tenure. And then finally, I just made full professor a couple of years ago. So it's not until you 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 know the world of academia is that strange, bizarro world. It's it's a wonderful world, but it also is people have no idea how much work is involved. But well, anyway, congratulations! I wouldn't do on, anything else. Well, congratulations <laughs> on that because it is a, a long road. And so now that you have full professorship, would you ever think about researching grief dreams? Yeah, I, you know it's it's strange because I'm kind of shifting my focus now as I'm, you know, find you know the first of all the ebook industry has destroyed any kind of hope that if you write a book you can make a living you know you get a you know a handful of coins for every book that you sell it's it's pretty bad so i've started um you know i'm writing more articles i'm writing for a journal now called the holy land review and i write mostly bible and archaeological stuff for them and it's shorter it's more immediate it's contemporary i really like it but I'm also feeling this tug to come back to my roots and really go back to dreams and to, to grief. And, you know, my, my husband works for hospice. You know, we talk about this stuff all the time. You know, I used to run a peer support group. We had a terrible fire here uh, about 20 years ago called this it was a, a nightclub fire. A hundred people burned to death in um, a fire. And uh, there were all kinds of support groups, but there was nothing for siblings. So I started a sibling support group. And from that, you know, now Compassionate Friends has a sibling support group for older siblings. And, you know, it, that, that whole um, area, sibling um, grief, is very near and dear to my heart as well. So the answer is yes to both, to grief dreams and to, to sibling grief. It's it's still very, very, um, you know, I've done a lot of professional stuff for people who, you know, the so-called grief experts in the field. And I'm always astounded when I'm doing my research. I'm like, nobody's writing about this, you know? It's the truth. I'll find my stuff, but nobody's really writing about it. So it's up to people like us to continue the, you know, the good fight and keep writing about it and talking about it because it does help people. And that's, what it's all about anyway well it's yeah it's about normalizing the experience and especially for dreams that was the one big thing it's just how do you provide a safe space for people to share because one of the biggest yeah. things i found is a lot of people hide these experiences maybe because you know they they told their family and then their family got jealous <laughs> right so they're like i'm not going to share yeah. it with anyone anymore uh, <laughs> I know. Yeah. Um, but a lot of people there's no one that's trained in it because there wasn't any research in it so like it's eludes a lot of people, grief counselors, people training thanatology, they don't know anything about it. And so they don't ask the questions. So people don't think that they're common. And it's just by doing research. And as you said, like sibling grief, not a lot of people talking about it. So like you have to do, I've learned along the way, academic research for people to value the subject. And then once it's valued, then you can talk about it. 
And so I'm glad exactly. you're you're heading back to it. And I'm glad you wrote the book. And you really you said like it was a bestseller. And I'm I'm real that what that says to me is that there's a lot of people longing for someone to write a book on that subject. And it took yeah. you to, you know, at all the people who lost siblings, it took it was you that wrote the book. And I think that's just phenomenal about who it is, who you are to be able to take up that torch and provide that help for people to in the, their time of need. So kudos to you uh, for doing that. And I was Thank wondering, you. I was wondering if you tell us a little bit about maybe the differences in sibling loss, because I've never lost a sibling, I lost a father. So, you know, what could we learn from you on that subject on that area? Well, you know, when you lose a brother or sister in adulthood, and, you know, it's very different when you're a child, and I'm not even going to address that because there are specialists who deal with children in grief. But when you're an adult, you know, your siblings are people that you believe, hope, that are there for you when you come into this world, as my case was, and you expect that they're going to be there through you. They're like your co-pilot in time. They go through toddlerhood with you and, you know, those teenage years and, you know, the young adult years that are so challenging and middle age. And then hopefully, you know, they'll help you as your parents get old, you know, uh, you lost your dad at a young age, but, you know, we all hope that our parents are going to live to be old and they'll have grandchildren and all that. And, you know, but when they need special care, you just think your siblings will be there to help you um, with that. And, you know, and then when they're not there, there's a, a huge void that is left in your life. And so for me, that's been the biggest thing. Even to this day, I still, sometimes something wonderful will happen or something awful. And my first thought is to go to the phone and call my brother. And it's it's strange because in the instant that I'm having that thought, you probably have had this happen with your dad as well, but in the instant that I have that thought, the reality is also sets in, you know, you can't do that, remember? You know. And so for me, that's the hardest thing, not having that person who was always a part of my life suddenly disappear from my life. And as I began to grow older and, you know, I got to his age and I was like, he only lived this long, you know, and he didn't get to see, you know, didn't get to spend time with my children. It, it's been a heartache on so many levels. I can't even... I can't even describe it. It's just this, you always have this kind of lonely feeling that lingers. I've had some issues in my life. I'm a, I'm a cancer survivor. I had a very aggressive cancer. I shouldn't have survived. And I wanted my brother, you know, and I I knew he would make me feel better. And um, there were times when I was going through that where I definitely felt his presence. So Life, you know, hands out these things to you that you never thought would happen to you. But at least for me, having my brother there always made things a little bit easier. You know, just having him to talk to and to look out for me. And and as I said, I never laughed so much as I did with him. We both had the same kind of quirky sense of humor. It's hard to find somebody like that. So it's it's a very unique experience and it's one that has highly overlooked as i said by the uh the grief experts which is really sad you know the the other thing that i want to just say this is you know when someone loses a brother or sister in adulthood people will usually when they find out about it they will come up and they'll say to you oh i heard your brother died how are your parents doing you know yeah, and you want to say, you don't even know my parents, but you know me, you know, 
how am I doing? It's um, it's this I call those kind of dismissive condolences. You know, that it's not a condolence for you at all. It's asking how your parents are doing, or you know, if they have a spouse or children, then it's very strange if that spouse begins to date again. You know, and then you don't get to see your nieces and nephews as much. Um, a lot of um, surviving siblings talk about that as being really, you know, a cause of great suffering. You know, that this is, I know this is true. A lot of um, um, families have fights and a lot of times, you know, the in-laws or the outlaws or whatever. And then when the sibling dies, you know, the surviving spouse will like move away, remarry. And it's it's almost like you're, your brother or sister never even existed. You know, you don't get to see the, the kids and it, it can be very, very difficult on a lot of different levels. So there's also this sense that, especially in, in here in uh, North America, where you're given about six weeks to kind of get over it. And then people basically don't want to hear about it. Whereas, in, uh, you know, that that's a very, I uh, find that's, you know, some religions offer a full year of grief you know, understanding that this is a significant loss, but it's really, uh, you know, the loss of an adult sibling is usually not afforded the, you know, the proper amount of time for you to process something like that. And then there are very few support groups, you know, I'm really in favor of, you know, death-specific grief groups. So if you lose a child, it's best for you to talk to other parents who have lost a child. If you lose a spouse or a friend, or a sibling. And so when I ran my um, siblings um, grief support group, we had just adult siblings. And we, you know, we all understood each other. And it was extremely comforting. And so my hope is that, you know, other people who come after me will consider that and you know, maybe do specialized training in those areas so that we can have you know, grief specific support groups. I think that's important. Wow, that's uh, it's so heartbreaking. People would just look at the parent and not like the person who's yeah. actually grieving. Like that surprises me, but actually it doesn't surprise me. <laughs> but yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. people so well. <laughs> yeah, there's some oh. But yeah, yeah. it's. Uh, I'm glad you brought that up because said like they're very important to remember that if someone does lose a sibling. These are things that they're going to deal with along their journey and people listening. Mm -hmm. It's nice to be aware of that. So you can be supportive of, the, of them as a sort of, uh, exactly. uh, as they grieve through these issues and then also feel that their grief's not supported. And like, even like the, right. the people moving, people are like getting remarried. I was like, I never even thought of that. If you're in a, like, I think if you're in a beautiful relationship, the partner will be really accepting of your grief and want everything to be maintained but for the most people mm -hmm. people in general they like to be the center of attention and will just gravitate towards each other and then your past like sort mm -hmm. of goes away and you know right. that's sad it's so sad and i'm like wow that's heartbreaking for you as a, a sister to not be able to see your nieces and nephews that's like i don't know i was just like i never really thought of that so thank you for bringing that up yeah, it, it really is. And, you know, the other thing, too, is your parents are devastated. They have lost a child. Of course we understand that. But I remember it was a full year before I felt like I could really grieve because especially my mother took things so hard. I was worried that she was going to die. You know, I mean, within a year, she lost her son, a grandson, and her mother. I was thinking, who could still stand, you know? 
and so you you jump in and you're you're caring for them and like i said if your sibling was you know with a partner or married or had kids or whatever you're expected to help deal with that if they lived alone you got to handle you know their taxes and all these things when you're not in any shape to help anybody you know i get letters and email and you know um, messages all the time for bereaved siblings and you know most of the time they're saying thank you for you know remembering us and writing about us and everything but honestly they help me too and i tell them that you know sometimes i'm having a terrible day and i get a letter of thanks and like well that just got me through that afternoon thank you so we we really are it's always been my my hope my vision to start an adult group, uh, an adult sibling grief community, and so we're kind of on our way. We've got a couple books and some articles out there. We've got the Facebook group. We've got the, you know, the the grieving sibling site that's up and running now, and um, you know, Compassion and Friends has an adult sibling grief group. So it's happening, you know, and um, I just wanted to continue. I don't, nah. I don't want anyone to have to go through what I went through. Now you just need to start a podcast. Yeah, we need to do a podcast. So. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. that's what we need yeah. to do. Oh, for sure, for sure. Helpful. Well, I mean, you yeah. know, and and truthfully, I think Dr. Black and what you're doing, Dr. Rick, I think like that's, it's important to have people like you in this field because you're academics who also are able to kind of connect with society at large. Uh, I think that sometimes is missing in a lot of academic study is having someone who can actually go out there and implement all this and you can see real results quickly from it right like you get to see yeah. the work the results of it pretty quickly when you talk to people or hear people's stories or get feedback uh, that's mm -hmm. positive from that and i think that is critical in this time um we i mean obviously as we were talking about it people have a some people just can't deal with grief or don't know how to deal with grief, which is what, you know, someone doesn't know what right. to say to a sibling who's lost, lost, uh, you know, someone or someone doesn't know right. what to say to uh, uh, maybe a father whose uh, wife's had a miscarriage. They don't know how to talk to that person. Mm -hmm. so all these mm -hmm. disenfranchised type of, you know, losses. And it, it's exactly. important for to have people who are, um, who are knowledge in the field who can also then go out there and, and talk to people about this because we're missing those type of leaders, essentially. We're missing mm -hmm. a lot of that. And I think yeah. that's what, and also obviously bringing in the grief dreams aspect to it because that that alone is has mm -hmm. something, so much in misinformation and, you know, just, just complications right. surrounding that. People need direction and guidance in that. So, uh, you know, that's exciting. Right. I'm really glad you uh, are interested in doing the this aspect of, of sharing the knowledge, which is bringing it out now to society. And and you've obviously already done that with your book. So that's that's tremendous. Yeah, but it's it's I, I think it's important. And, you know, it's it, yeah, it takes some understanding, but mainly it takes compassion. And, you know, if, if you've lost your father and you talk to someone else who's lost their father, you know, it's different. It's just different. They they have a level of understanding that someone who has both parents alive and well don't they, they they don't understand. And they you know you don't want them to go through that, of course, you know. But it's like uh, I know on my uh, adult sibling grief webpage um, and the Facebook group, you know, like I said, people who are joining for the first time, they're like, I'm so glad I found you. Nobody really understands, you know, and 
they can just talk about it. And then the other things too, like the way the person died. You know, we have on the grieving sibling site, we have different rooms where you could, not rooms, but different, I always get this mixed up, but kind of uh, forums, that's, thank you, forums. So we have one that somebody who lost a sibling to suicide. We have another one called um, stigma of homicide, sibling homicide. And, you know, a lot of people didn't think, oh, there's a stigma associated with it. Yeah, there is. And let's talk about that. So I think it's all, you know, it's moving in a healthy direction, but we've got to just keep, you know, keep moving forward, you know, keep talking about it. That's right. No, I like it. You just got to keep talking about it. I'm curious, do you see, because yep. you're really into the, the sibling loss, do you see any unique themes in those dreams? Like I was wondering, just like thinking about some of the issues they face, uh, and like mm-hmm. one of them may be they might not dream of the deceased, but they may dream of the kids that they don't see anymore. Right. Like that could mm-hmm. be a theme that's related to the loss that you just you wouldn't sort of associate. Oh, yeah. And some of it, not only the dreams, but um, a lot of the dreams are triggered by the they're going through a, a bunch of legal problems. So let's say you had and I'm not going to mention any names of people I do mention by name, I have permission, but um, many siblings, this has happened to, I'm thinking about one in particular, her sister's husband murdered her, murdered her sister, and they have three kids, and the three kids are with their father who's in you know, prison right now for murder with that, those grandparents, and there's a big legal battle going on, you know, because she wants to have custody of those kids. You know, so you wouldn't think that that would be, wow, where did that come from? But that happens a lot. Um, and so that's something that, you know, causes a lot of trauma dreams. Going to court, you know, um, if you're, and, and I just mentioned the murder, you know, sometimes people are arrested and they're, you know, they go to prison for the crime, but then they come up for parole. And there you are, whatever it is, every 10 years or whatever going to that state, sitting there listening to all of this and speaking either in favor or against or whatever. I mean, it just never ends, you know, in the case of homicide. It's just really horrible. Or sometimes the murder is never found. So there's a lot that goes on uh, with that. So, yeah, so their dreams, um, you know, are pretty complex. I would encourage you to um, please join our group uh, our Facebook group and our webpage, and you know, and you, you'll learn a lot just about the nature of this particular type of loss. I think it would also help um, Dr. Black's research. So, oh, definitely, I'll definitely do that. And you're right; yeah. it's very interesting yeah. to me because, so like, all these dreams do showcase the unique relationship that they have with people, and also the issues they they are dealing with through their grief. And you said the trauma dreams definitely reflect. Mm-hmm. those issues especially with the legal stuff and things that is interesting you brought that up i haven't yep. seen many of those yeah. but that at the same time i'm not there's so much to learn <laughs> from um, yeah. where i'm standing yeah. and you know we all have pieces yeah. of the puzzle and so that's that's nice that you could raise awareness on that also as we wrap up one of the uh the questions we always ask our guests is if you could have a dream tonight of your brother what would that mm-hmm. dream look like oh i I would love to have just a a visitation dream where he just we're just sitting there together and I just would love to see him and hear his voice. That's all. Are you eating fishes this time or no? 
<laughs> no, it doesn't matter that. Just it doesn't have to be anything fantastic. I just, you know, and it's a big fear. We talk about this a lot. At least siblings do. I'm not sure about other grief groups. The fear that you're not going to remember what they sound like. I could still hear his voice in my head, but I would just love to talk with him and just be in his presence and you know hug him. You know, it. That's if I could get my pick. That's what it would be. Would you want him to be the age he was when he died, or the age he would be now? I would take him at any age. <laughs> you know, it's just—it's you know—it's—it's it's strange because I, like most people, I used to be terrified not so much of dying, but of the way I would die. Um, and since my brother's death, I don't—I'm just nothing i'm not really afraid of anything anymore i feel like i had the worst thing that can happen to you one of the worst things that could happen to you and i'm still standing and um and i i do believe i i am a person who does have a deep belief in the goodness of god and um i i know that i'll see my brother again soon so well, this has been such a pleasure for me to connect with you after, especially reading that book and then reading that article uh, from Next Avenue. And then, I'm like, and then it's triggered everything, you know, because it was on my bookshelf for so long and you just get into other yeah. things and you forget. And then all of a sudden I read that. I'm like, wait a second, all these flashbacks come happening. And I'm like, we got to get you on. So yeah. I'm so happy we we're able to talk to you. And I, I feel we're going to be still connected after this um, as we sort of both move oh, forward. Oh, absolutely. Journeys. <laughs> so that that's yes, exciting I would for love me, to right? Collaborate with you. Yes, yes. I'm. I would love to talk with you more about your work, and um, I'm so pleased that the work you're doing already. And keep it up, and um, spread the word. I'll spread the word, and um, I, I think I think you're going to make a big difference in this world. So thank you. Going. You know, like that's the uh, amazing thing about life is that you can have these very traumatic moments in life, and interesting how they at times can then provide life for yourself and also for others as they work through those times and they just don't feel as alone and you know like both the work we're doing it was disenfranchised mm -hmm. in our society in the sense that it just wasn't looked mm -hmm. it wasn't looked upon it wasn't talked about and so here we are talking about something that a lot of people deal with and you know like yep. what more can you ask for for yourself to be a part of a movement within a society that helps people heal and helps Absolutely. people feel um supported you know and that's what the podcast is for and when you start your podcast i'll definitely jump on that <laughs> absolutely you maybe when guess. you retire oh yeah <laughs> please do bring me on i love it <laughs> yeah love because it. that's having a huge reach and that's you know it's really interesting when we talk about podcasts is i wouldn't have done this without sean because he was really into the movement prior wow. to me even knowing and like here we are with three years four years down the road and it's amazing how many people find us through the podcast not through anywhere else and it's just the wow. next generation are really using like instagram and podcasting as their news source as their way they turn to find information to feel comforted it's not reading books yeah. it's not you know googling like they go there because that's what they're listening to so hopefully one day uh we, we get you on the we get you uh having your own podcast because i think that's uh really important for the um the sibling loss section of grief yeah yeah, I think so too. And I thank you for the suggestion. I've I've thought about it and uh but you're right. Thank you. I need to get a little kick in the tush and get moving here. Hey, we we got so, the tools for you. It won't take long, you know, like to get you started. So yeah. don't be afraid of uh the uh 
the logistics of it. That's not an issue. Okay, sounds great. <laughs> sounds wonderful. Wonderful. Well, I'll be in touch with you privately about that. But um, thank you for having me and um, for all the work that you guys are doing. I just have so much respect for you guys and, um, you know, wish you the best of luck and continued success and, and helping others. It's really great stuff. All right. So where can people, again, find your, your work, your books, your websites? Yeah, my website is uh, T-J-W-R-A-Y. How you spell my last name? Author.com. You could do tjray.com too, and it'll go to it. And then the grieving sibling um, is for you know, it's a website. It's very interactive. It's closed. You know, it's private and everything. So what you say stays there. That's um, so yeah. The grievingsibling.com, and then we have a Facebook grief uh, a group called Adult Sibling Grief, based on my book Surviving the Death of the Sibling. There's about three thousand of us there. So. We're around and we're here to support anyone who needs it. Beautiful. And don't forget to check out your Grief Dreams book. <laughs> that's right. Grief Dreams. Yeah. yeah. I'm not very good at promoting my books, but yeah, Grief Dreams. <laughs> yep. That's an important one too. And, uh, well, it yeah, started, and, it, uh, it really started the movement. And I think that's what it's 15 it, years old, but there's still a lot of information yeah. in there that can be helpful. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. So, anyway. That's great. Thank you so much for having me on. This has been a great experience and I really appreciate it. Yeah, absolutely, TJ. This has been uh, excellent and, you know, really uh, a blessing to be able to talk to someone who I kind of feel like you're a mentor now. Like, you know, you're, you're really guiding us in the right way. And, uh, you know. Yeah, actually, before we go, Sean, I want to mention people probably don't know why we even call ourselves Grief Dreams Podcast. Mm -hmm. You know, and I think that's interesting because when I jumped on the scene, they called this topic everything under the sun. There's, <laughs> there's oh. dreams of the dead. There's visitation wow. dreams. There's dreams of the departed. There was uh, you're you were the only one calling it grief dreams, <laughs> and yeah, so, dreams. which was wow. interesting that wow. you know because of what you titled your book allowed it to be a part of what could we title the podcast and even the work moving forward. And because I think bereavement dreams probably a little bit more accurate, but when we sampled that, people mm. didn't know how to spell bereavement or didn't know what it was. Yeah. So we went to we went right. to grief dreams. So you're actually your book was actually part of the legacy of what we're doing now. FYI. Oh, that's yeah. great. That's wonderful. That's really good. and we haven't even talked about animals and dreams. I got a lot of stories about that too, but maybe another time. Just yeah, we'll, we'll definitely have to have you on again. Uh, we're, we're super interested yeah. in that topic amongst uh, lots of other topics. But uh, again, thank yeah. you so much, TJ. Really appreciated this. Um, so everybody can please check out our platform at griefdreams.ca for more information on the topic. If you like to, if you would like to contribute to the pod, uh, podcast, we really appreciate that. You can find the links on the website. Uh, if you have Facebook, you can join the Grief Dreams group. You can share your dreams or hear more dreams of others. We are on Twitter and Instagram at Grief Dreams. And as always, we like to end the show with love and gratitude from us to you. Myself, you have introduced yourself. This is a very good conversation.